This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. So welcome to uh, the UCSF Osher Center Mini Medical School. We're focusing on a women's guide to wellness in today's world. So I'm just going to do a quick introduction here to put us all in the same frame of mind that we had a week ago, and that is that today's world presents all of us with a number of challenges, and the theme of this course really is that there are social pressures or societal pressures for women and actually for men to achieve in multiple domains. And I talked about the family and just highlighted last week the importance of children in our lives, partners, very, very important. We all want to have healthy, you know, vibrant relationships, positive relationships with our family. Um, Then there's also the home, and I talked last week about food and just finding the time to buy food, to cook food, shelter, Another really important issue, and here you see a woman trying to deal with her child and in you know facing Hurricane Sandy. These are the kinds of things that you know many of us have dealt with at times in our lives, and that just home has so many dimensions, all the way down to you know decorating, as I mentioned last time. You know that we um, you know not everyone's home looks like it came out of uh, good house be- housekeeping or some of those even fancier magazines. You look at those and say, you know, who buys these things and where do you buy these things and who has the time and the money. But, and then all of a sudden they changed everything. There was country look. Remember that when we had dried things hanging from the ceilings? And, you know, and we had televisions that had to be hidden in big boxes, and now we you know, they don't do that anymore. There are these big armoire things. You know, this is, you know, it's really difficult to do that, plus have family, home, and also work, and work both outside the home, work inside the home. Many of us work in multiple dimensions. So, and then we add to that caregiving. Um, and I want you to start maybe between now and next week, what are some of the other domains that many of us have these multiple roles? And this is really true of men and women in our society. And then we get to this other domain, the domain of self, which is... The, the part where we enrich ourselves, reading the great books, uh, spending time with our dear friends, exercise, which we are learning every day is more and more valuable in terms of our health. Finding time to do that, either with friends or alone, can be very difficult, and there are certain times of the day that are better than others. I I have to make compromises, so I do most of my exercising late at night. I know that's not ideal, but at least I do it every single day. 
But that, and we'll talk about in, one, in the last lecture when I talk about putting this all together to fit your priorities and your lifestyle, how you make some of those decisions to pull together a portfolio for your health. Uh, the other aspect we'll be talking about tonight that relates to ourselves is our body image. And this was something I wanted right from the get-go as we thought about this program to really talk about that because this is not just an issue for tiny people, but as our speaker will describe, it's an issue that extends across the lifespan. So there are these societal pressures to do it all. And we've done some research that I was actually involved in when I was down at Stanford that showed what women seem to do is that they see other women excelling in each domain. And then as we begin to think about what we should be, we sort of pluck you know, examples from each of those and say, well, I should be able to do it all. And um, that's very, very difficult to have the body image of someone who that's all they do is that, um, to you know, have a work life that's perfect, to also have many children, to have a, an extended family and friends, and to be able to be perfection. And that's where you get this superwoman syndrome, because it's really not possible. And what that leads to is stress. Uh, significant stress. So we're going to, we, we will explore where these pressures come from. Um, and we, last week we talked about sort of some of the pressures are biologic that are there. And, and when I give the final talk, I'll talk about the, the sort of balancing of the biology with the environment and how that shapes the biology and then our choices on top of that. But tonight we'll talk about a pressure that begins, as you're going to hear, very, very early that has to do with how we look and our body image from our speaker. And then, as I mentioned, we'll conclude with some strategies to help you clearly create your own portfolio. So tonight we have, we'll be hearing about body image. Don't let the ideal get in the way of real health. And then next week we're going to be talking about women and sleep from stressful to restful. And let me now introduce tonight's speaker. Her name is Andrea Garber. She is Associate Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Adolescent Medicine at UCSF, and she has a joint appointment in the School of Public Health at UC Berkeley. She's also a nutritionist. She has a PhD in human and child uh, clinical nutrition from the University of Madison, um, Wisconsin-Madison, sorry, and she's a registered dietitian um, and received her RD, a registered dietitian's degree, here for, at UCSF. She is the chief nutritionist on the UCSF Eating Disorders Program and the Childhood Obesity Program. This is the WATCH program. So she's really knowledgeable about healthy diets and also looking at um, weight issues. Her interest areas focus on nutritional problems in adolescents, namely obesity and eating disorders, including anorexia nervosa and I would suspect bulimia as well. She has also been studying fast food purchases and menu labeling, and she's been working with the legislation that with this, in this regard, working with the California legislation that relates even to one of the propositions in a way that we've, some of us have been reading and hearing about. And she's doing that in collaboration with a very, very interesting group, the Center for Science and the Public Interest, which is what, that's the center that from time to time points out some of the things that we eat that are really, really unhealthy and that should have major warning labels on them. So she's doing some policy work as well as science and looking at issues around 
diet and, um, and weight. Her teaching has received awards from the Academy of Medical Educators here at UCSF and the International Academy of Eating Disorders, so you are in for a real treat. So it's my pleasure to introduce our expert tonight, Andrea Garber. So uh, the topic tonight is body image. Don't let ideal get in the way of real health. Um, you know, I promise you that Dr. Chesney and I created this title. We thought it was so original. And look what I found as I was researching the topic more. Um, and at first I was mortified because I saw this interesting title, Is the Pursuit of the Perfect Body Getting in the Way of Optimal Health? Um, but it really drives home the point that this is a very hot topic and people are talking about it quite a bit. Um, and specifically that is, how is our body image or how is our pursuit of the perfect body leading to unhealthy behaviors and habits and getting in the way obscuring our view of what truly is healthy. Um, the good point that this um, beautiful um, poster makes also is that this is a topic that affects women but also men. So today, I'd like to just start quickly by defining body image um, and giving a little bit of a history about the evolution of the thin ideal and then talking about the role of the media in perpetuating the thin ideal and then talking about what does thin really mean? Does thin really equate with healthy? We've all made that equation in one way or another for so long in our society, and some new evidence suggests maybe that was a mistake. And then finally, what's the answer? How can we collectively refocus on health? So starting with body image, this is a term that was coined in 1935, um, and it really has to do with self-perception. Um, when Dr. Chesney was talking about the different domains, this really does fall under that domain of self because it's a, really the question of how do I appear to others in terms of attractiveness, in terms of beauty. And when we're making those judgments, we're comparing ourselves to a societal standard. And this is a significant component of self-esteem. And what we see in our patients with disordered eating and body dysmorphia is that body image actually makes up a tremendous portion of self-esteem, when really, in theory, in a healthy, healthy outlook, certainly body image probably should make up a small portion of self-esteem, but we should really derive our self-esteem from so many other domains, including our friendships and our family life and our school performance and our work life and so on. So let's talk for a minute about the, the ideal. Um, although body image really kind of became a catchphrase in 1935, we know that throughout human society, the human body and images of beauty have been long revered. The problem is that that image is constantly changing. And here's a perfect example, right? You can't really get away with this costume at a cocktail party these days unless it's Halloween. Um, so what about this image of beauty? Let's just start with a brief history within the last century or so, um, starting in the 19th century before the Civil War. Um, this is when um, the wasted look, or a very thin ideal, first um, was noted in popular women's magazines. Um, and you can see from the picture here, the ideal was really a small, very thin female form. You can see the very, very small corseted waists. Um, and in fact, wasting and extreme thinness was associated this time with tuberculosis. And because that was so rampant, it, it really, in a strange way, became popular and fashionable. And you can see these images in women's magazines of the time. 
after the Civil War, there was a nice period where a more full-figured woman came back into style, and that was really embodied by Lillian Russell. She was the big star of the time. And in fact, this is interesting because there was a Lillian Russell doll set, and you can see the actual body parts. And although, you know, they're beautiful and well-formed, they look athletic, she has dance shoes on, these are not skinny by today's standards. They were valued a more of athletic or a larger form. But of course, that doesn't always last long. And in fact, in the 1900s came the Gibson girl. Um, and this was really an image that was supposed to represent a stronger, more independent woman who was emerging in the 20th century. She was The Gibson girls were known for their S-curve, and you can see that. It's a very full bust with a very tiny waist and um, wider hips. Um, and these images, many, many um, of these forms were popularized by Charles Gibson. And these sketches appeared in weekly, especially women's magazines, for over 30 years. And that hairstyle is really the iconic Gibson girl hairstyle. Even as recently, Diane Keaton used to wear that hairstyle with that bun on top. Then entering the Roaring Twenties, one of the most fashionable times in our, in our uh, history, you all remember the flappers, with characterized by their short skirts, their bobbed hair, and the rebellious spirit of the time. What was feminist, essentially, about this look is that it rejected any semblance of fertility and reproductive health. And in fact, the fashions were meant to flatten the chest, not emphasize the waist. They were very square and boxy. And so this was really the anti-S-curve fashion of the time. Um, and for many women, this was really a, um, a, a moment of, of breakthrough. But of course, it didn't last long. Very shortly after women's suffrage in 1920, in 1921 was the first Miss America contest. And in fact, bust, bust and waist sizes increased during that time, and a fuller figure came back into style. Many historians believe that was because of the Depression. When food became scarce, it became fashionable again to show that you could maintain a bigger body. And here's a picture of Miss America. 19, this is 1926 Miss America. I put this one because this is the first time bathing suits were in the contest. This is actually a bathing suit. It's not an evening gown. It's the polka dot bathing suit. But you can see here, um, this really emphasizes a full figure look. So fast forward through some real full-figured icons like Marilyn Monroe, straight to Twiggy in the 1960s. Um, if you're not familiar with Twiggy, she is the British model who was named the face of 1966 by London's Daily Express. Um, at five foot six, she weighed 110 pounds. Her bust measurement was 31. 22 waist and 32 inch hips. Um, and she is really a significant character in the evolution of body image in the, in the female ideal because many historians believe that she really set the stage for the current ideal. That um, we really, although there have been slight variations, we're still in twiggy mode, many believe. I had to put in the 1980s though because this is when I was in high school and I have the pictures to prove it. It, the fashions um, were god-awful. Uh, however, what you can say is that during this fitness craze, um, it really popularized a more healthy female form, at least in the sense that it emphasized fitness. Um, and the models who were popular in this time were at least healthier looking, even though a very unachievable ideal. Cindy Crawford is an example. And the fashions to go with this body type were less restrictive. So we were wearing leg warmers to school and just, I mean, you wouldn't, you, you, you probably remember. Um, but at least we got away from the tight, tight, small, shrunken look. 
But it was only momentary, of course, because in the 1990s, here we were back with Kate Moss. Um, people called this the heroin chic look. Chic look. Um, and it was really characterized by very pale skin, dark circles under the eyes, emaciated features, an androgynous look. Um, and some people believe that this was a backlash against that vibrant, more fitness-oriented look of the 1980s. So where are we today? It's impossible to make a slide about what is ideal today, right, because it's too soon to tell. The good thing about today is that as hard as women have fought to achieve what we have, we have a much more diverse view of what a successful woman looks like, acts like, and um, what roles we can play. And so I just put here some examples. Um, you can see here Marissa Meyer, the, the new CEO of Yahoo. She probably is closest to you know what people would call the ideal um, with her cute outfit there. But, um, but there are many, many women that we can look to now that exemplify different shapes, different types. However, <laughs> so I had to incorporate some election fun, right, since, <laughs> since you guys came out on November 6th. It's interesting, however, as far as women have risen, and I'm sure women in the, in the 1900s at the turn of the century never thought there would be a woman running for vice president. As far as we have come, there is still an absolute intense focus on the appearance of women at every level that they achieve. And it's interesting because when I was looking for pictures online, you would not believe how many pictures there are of Sarah Palin in bikinis on the Internet. I think you would be hard-pressed to find one of Paul Ryan in a you know, a Speedo or something. But this is, although we talk about body image affecting both men and women, the intense focus on women, on what they wear, how they look, it's, it's, um, it's very interesting. In fact, it's an alarming trend. Now, we've had a lot of fun with that, of course, um, if anyone watches Saturday Night Live. But in some very real ways, this is an example. This is Julia Louise Dreyfus and on her show where she plays the vice president. And you can see it's kind of the Sarah Palin look, right? The jacket with the hair and everything. So this does translate into pop culture and our expectations for what women should look like even when they're trying to run the country. Okay. So like I said, it's too soon to say what today's ideal is, but as Dr. Chesney put, we really still have not evolved very far from the superwoman syndrome that was coined in the 1980s. Women are still expected to be the masters of their career, masters of their home and family. Um, today, thinness still is a representation of power, of self-control, of status, and this probably has been exacerbated instead of ameliorated by the obesity epidemic. While we would think on the one hand that more people are different shapes, more people are overweight than ever before, it should be more acceptable to present with different shapes. In fact, the overweight trend in the United States has made it more unattainable to be thin and more difficult to be thin in the United States. So... Why do we care about this? What about this body image? And how does it affect um, our daily life? Well, it depends how much people internalize this thin ideal. And internalization of the thin ideal really refers to the belief that thinness will bring success. It will bring acceptance and happiness and beauty. And ultimately, this leads to total disappointment and negative body image. Um, in adolescence, and that's the group that I really work with the most, we know that poor body image is a risk factor for disordered eating and other risky behaviors, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Um, in 
women, it, um, poor body image is linked to depression, to anxiety, and to product consumption. And in fact, this is something that still goes on today, but I just love to show this old, old ad for Get Plump. Why suffer the tortures with inferior, inferior mechanical devices that can artificially fatten? Don't look like a poor, unfortunate soul. And it, the, the ad goes on to say that you shouldn't have to stay in your house ashamed of your thin body. Now, this was probably during um, one of our full-figured crazes. And you can see if you buy that product, you can plump up and be happy and, and leave the house with self-respect. So... Nothing has really changed, right? You watch TV, you know, if, you're, if your thighs have, a, have veins, you buy a certain cream. If your face has this, you buy a certain lotion. Um, so this idea that poor body image and, um, can be fixed with uh, product consumption still very much holds true, and it is a multi-billion dollar market. Okay. Barbara Cohen really put it best. She's the author of, of um, The Psychology of Ideal Body Image as an Oppressive Force in the Lives of Women. This is a seminal book from the 1980s. And she says, society says that women must be beautiful to be worthy and then sets an unattainable standard of beauty such that women are willing to sacrifice their health in trying to achieve the unattainable. <coughs> so how is this thin ideal Perpetuated. There are many, many ways, but the one that I wanted to focus on today is the media because, like I said, I work with adolescents and teenagers are very, very involved with the media. In fact, among 8 to 18-year-olds, they spend up to seven hours per day with media. Um, they get eight and a half hours of content. So how could that be, you ask? Because they are multitasking. So they're watching TV while they're on the Internet. They're listening to their iPods while they're um, on the computer. Two-thirds of adolescents have a TV in their own bedroom. And in older teens, they actually tend to watch a little bit less TV. They switch more towards magazines, music, and so on. Um, if you look at the average time that 8- to 18-year-olds spend per day, what you can see here is almost four hours of watching TV. Now, that's in front of a TV screen, so it may be videos, maybe DVDs. Um, an hour and 44 minutes listening to music, and then the list goes on. But you can see if you add up all of this time, it's a tremendous, tremendous amount of media time. I like to slow th show this slide, too, because... When we talk to adolescents about making improvements in their activity, for example, they always tell me, I can't have too much homework. So it's interesting because if you think of the previous slide and this slide, homework is way down at the end of the list, almost next to doing chores. So when you're really able to measure these things, and these studies have been done in thousands of kids, it's not the homework that is, that is consuming all of their time. So what about all of this uh, media exposure? Well, the purpose is to sell food, mostly. There are ads for other things, but food is certainly the largest proportion of the ads that they're exposed to. 40,000 ads per year on average. 32% is for candy, 31% for cereal. Only 9% is for fast food, but as we know, fast food has many other ways of advertising than TV. Um, product placement is also very interesting for anyone who's ever watched American Idol. Coke, right? They're all drinking out of their Coke cups while they're making their decisions, um, and that has led to big uh, controversy, controversy because that is in a form advertising. 
There are three to five references for food or snacks for every 30 minutes of primetime TV. Um, again, 60% are for beverages, sodas mostly, 72% for snacks, 44% for sweets, no commercials for broccoli, no commercials for <laughs> fresh fruit. So the other trend that is really interesting are cross-promotions, and this is using popular characters to sell products. Um, cross-promotions are really, really important for teens because the teen idols are so well-recognized. Um, Teens see or hear about four to 600 ads per day. That seems almost unimaginable, but that includes the ads that are present like on the side, on the bar, when you're viewing um, a web content, um, maybe a billboard that you drive by, and maybe an ad that you hear um, on break if you're listening to Spotify or music on, online. 69% of girls in one study say that magazine models influence their idea of the perfect body. And so this cross-promotions, because they're mostly for junk food, as I said, they're for fast food, they're for candy, they're for soda, it really represents the ultimate paradox because you're simultaneously promoting junk food and an obsession with thinness. Here's an example of, of Nicki Minaj. Um, she is now the new spokesperson for Pepsi. Uh, when she appeared on American Idol, there was a big uproar, right, right, because she's the Pepsi spokesperson and they're all about Coke on American Idol. It was apparently a big problem. Um, you maybe you did not know that Lady Gaga is um, now formed has now formed a partnership with Starbucks, um, and you know these cross promotions are really really powerful. Teens are spending a tremendous amount of money, over two hundred billion dollars on products in two, 2011, and so they really have purchase power, and um, products are going after them. Here's the last one I just wanted to show. This is a 2005 ad from Carl's Jr. Does anyone remember this? It was Paris Hilton on a Rolls Royce eating this giant hamburger. Um, and in fact, the um, Parents TV Council was incensed over these ads because they said this is really amounting to softcore porn. And Carl's Jr. told them, quote, get a life. So you can see how much influence parents have and how much influence um, we have in trying to combat these, this tremendous amount of money that's being spent um, by industry. I said that this does not only affect women alone, so I wanted to put one up there for the men in the room. This is another Carl's Jr. It says, she'll tell you size doesn't matter. She's lying. And again, the giant hamburger. So this is a different, we're not going to discuss this level of body image, but you guys get the point. Okay. So why did I choose to focus that little bit on media? Um, the reason is because in many ways the media undermines our efforts to try to focus on health and improve our body image. Um, and here's an example, a mom sitting down trying to have the talk, and the kid says, there's no need for the talk, mom. I've seen it all on TV. So which risky behaviors are promoted by the media? There are many, sex and sexuality, violence and aggression, alcohol and tobacco, and of course the one we're focusing on today, which is poor body image. And in all of these domains, there are direct effects and indirect effects. And we're not talking about violence, but I just wanted to give you an example because here's an area where there's really a lot of good evidence that especially young children, but even early adolescents that are exposed to a lot of violent programming, um, like gang depictions, for example, may are at higher risk of trying to reenact these scenes, so higher rates of violence in kids who watch more of this on TV. But there are indirect effects, too, and this is often seen in small children um, where they're not able to comprehend the scenes that they're 
they're watching that leads to suppressed fear and aggressive behavior towards others. Um, and this is one of those areas that is just logical to us now. You know, the American Academy of Pediatrics now says no TV for children under two years old, and there are very strict guidelines for limiting TV watching in young children. Um, not true for nutrition because it's not an area that's as well established, but nevertheless, it is known that there is a direct effect. Kids eat what they watch on TV. And of course, that just seems so obvious, right? The, the, the advertisers have known that forever, and that's why they're spending billions of dollars doing it. But now the science supports that. Um, and then there are indirect effects. Poor body image and anxiety increases, studies have shown, in both girls and women who, um, as they are increasingly sexualized or exposed to increasingly sexualized images on TV. So what about media use, disordered eating, and weight concerns? Internalization of that thin ideal that I talked about has been shown to increase risk for developing an eating disorder. Um, this was established in the Growing Up Today study. You might be uh, familiar with the Nurses Health Study. These are actually the children of the nurses that were enrolled in that study. So it's over 6,000 girls and 5,000 boys. And what they found, if they look in the young people who say that they're trying to emulate a certain look of TV, of media characters, they found significantly more weight concerns and more eating disorder behavior, specifically binging behavior. What about TV time and weight gain? Um, there have been several good studies to show that more TV equals more weight gain. Um, there's not as strong an association between TV time and physical activity, but there have been randomized control trials to show that if you can get kids to watch less TV, they will gain less weight. It's difficult to measure what they're doing when they're not watching TV, but it's certainly something more active than, than this. So how does screen time lead to weight gain? Probably because it discourages nutrition and physical activity. Um, we believe that kids who watch more TV have less active time, especially less time outdoors. Um, studies have shown that the metabolic rate during watching TV is actually lower than sleeping, which is hard to believe, right? Um, I guess at least when you're sleeping, you might toss and turn a little bit, but watching TV, um, kids tend to be very still in the reclined position. Um, dieting and disordered eating um, can lead to weight gain over time. There are longitudinal studies now to show that dieting is a risk factor for weight gain. I try to um, tell the young women that I work with about that because, um, of course, they believe that dieting short-term is going to lead to this achievement of the thin ideal and make them happier. But it, is, in fact, leads to weight gain over five years. Um, I already said that another way TV um, impacts health is that kids consume what's being advertised and promoted, which is junk food, and then they're also eating while they're watching. Um, kids who watch more TV eat more fast food. They eat less fruits and vegetables and drink more soda. So um, what about weight gain? Why do we care about that? Um, the reason that we care about that is because weight gain damages body esteem. Um, and the what has been shown in studies is that low self-esteem has been shown in obese teenagers. And this was a question for a long time. Why should obese teenagers have lower self-esteem? Are they teased at school? What's going on there? And what they have found in studies is that when you control for body image alone, so perception of weight and perception of how others see you, overweight girls don't differ from normal weight counterparts with respect to other psychosocial factors. So for example, they achieve well in school, they have friends, they have connections in their families and other organizations 
organizations. But it's the body image that I said, as I said before, that's leaking over into all of these other parts and damaging their self-esteem. Okay, so we talked a little bit about what is body image, what's the ideal throughout history and today. What's the role of the media? And again, I chose to focus on that because that starts so early with that influence. Um, And now the question is, what about this thin ideal? Is being thin really being healthy? Well, this is a very hot topic in the so-called field of obesity. And in fact, um, this was an article just recently in the New York Times um, about the obesity paradox. And this is something that researchers are really grappling with right now. It's very controversial. In fact, a lot of scientists in the field feel that they've had a tough time publishing their results. What they have found is that patients with chronic disease like diabetes who are overweight or obese actually live longer than similar patients who are normal weight. So, like I said, it was very difficult to get these results out because it was counter to what everybody had um, originally believed. And it led to a couple of questions. First of all, could there be something protective about fat? And the second one is, is there a better marker of health than weight? So first of all, and you might hear about this more in the stress lecture, the first answer to the question is that yes, fat placement matters. Um, and if you look at the, these two representation here, here is the classic what we used to call the apple shape where this woman tends to carry fat more around the middle versus a pear shape where this woman t- tends to carry more fat around the lower parts. Um, so when you look at the pear, or that used to be called the gynoid form of um, obesity, that is generally subcutaneous fat. And in fact, long-term studies have shown that subcutaneous fat is protective, and it is related to longer lifespan. So this is the number one reason to love your thighs, because they're good for you. Um, This shape tends to occur, this is a more classic shape in women. Um, The apple shape is a more classic shape in men. Um, It is related to testosterone levels, androgen levels, um, and that's why women, as we age, we tend to collect more. One reason why we tend to collect more fat around the middle is because of our declining estrogen levels. Um, The apple shape, or the android, so-called android obesity shape, um, it's not just the fat around the middle um, that is subcutaneous. In other words, the pinch and inch fat. It's the intraorganal or visceral fat. Um, That is the highly metabolically active fat. It's related to many risk factors, including uh, dyslipidemia, which is high cholesterol, high blood pressure, and so on. So this shape is considered to be more of a high-risk shape metabolically, um, and like I said, it's more likely to be present in men. So the take-home message here is that not all fat is created equal. The second piece, um, the second question was, is there a better marker of health? And as it turns out, fitness is very, very important. And surprisingly, although many studies, big, big studies over time, have tried to measure physical activity, they never really got good measures of fitness. And it turns out that fitness level may be a much more important marker of health. So I wanted to tell you a little bit about the Aerobic Center Longitudinal Study. This is 80,000 participants. So this is one of those giant studies that is really 
really informative because they were followed long-term from 1970 to 2005. They did extensive clinical exams um, with a physician, including a history and physical and, um, and different markers, body composition and so on, lab tests. And then they followed, they did mortality surveillance and recorded more than 4,000 deaths over time because they're looking to see why are people dying. Um, well, what did they find? If you look here, um, these are age-adjusted ad death rates by fitness and BMI categories. Here are the BMI categories. So if you're not familiar with this, um, this would include people who are normal weight and on the low end of the so-called overweight. These people are in the overweight category, and these people would be in the obese category. And the bars, the green bar is low fitness level, the yellow bar is moderately fit, and the pink bar is high fit. And so most of these studies that study fitness actually look at cardiovascular fitness, so testing on a treadmill, for example. And what they found is that in every category, no matter what the weight was, it's the low fitness group that is at the highest risk for death or the shortest lifespan, so to speak, if you have a long-term study like this. Now, there are caveats to this type of research. Number one is something that I call the Arnold effect. Again, in keeping with our political theme tonight, I couldn't resist putting a picture of our former governor. Um, the Arnold effect is the fact that, especially in men, muscle mass contributes to high BMI. So the more you weigh, the higher your BMI. And in fact, it has been said that at the height of his bodybuilding career, Arnold Schwarzenegger's BMI was around 32, which would make him look categorically obese. Um, the other problem is that there are more smokers in the low fitness and low BMI group. And another piece that has not been quite um, answered is that although they try to adjust for health status, chronic disease impacts the results. So it's a confounder. In other words, it affects both fitness level and BMI. Nevertheless, when you look at these data and try to adjust for many of these different um, parameters that I just mentioned, including smoking, what you can see here is that when you look at body fat, getting away from BMI now and just really trying to look at body composition and how, what the body fat levels are, you can see if you look at unfit in the yellow compared to the fit group in the red, at every level of body fat, mortality is higher in the unfit group. And this is cardiovascular disease, so these are people who generally um, die of a heart attack. You can see here, much, much higher in the unfit group. So the take-home message, oh, I can't give the take-home message yet. I have one more slide just to convince you, in case you're not convinced yet. I just wanted to tell you quickly about attributable faction, fractions of health outcomes. This is the estimated number of deaths due to a specific characteristic. And this is another way to look at the data to really see, can you say or can you attribute the cause of death to one characteristic or one behavior or the other? And what you can see when they calculate these attributable fractions of all-cause mortality is that if you look at the different behaviors, low fitness level, obesity, smoking, and then these are risk factors commonly considered like hypertension, high cholesterol, and diabetes, in women in the yellow and in men, low fitness accounts for the highest number of deaths, more so than smoking. 
So it's really very interesting and really informs our approach, especially our clinical approach, right, where we've been hitting everyone over the head with, you know, stop smoking and lose weight and so on, while ignoring really important um, health behaviors that everybody can achieve at every weight, which is to improve your fitness level. Okay. So just the mini conclusion, just from this one part, is that what we know now is that thinness does not equal health and longevity. Fitness may, in fact, be a more important determinant of health. And that public health approaches, clinical care, and our personal focus really needs to shift away from weight, and it needs to now include health and activity. So how do we do that? That's the big question. Well, we begin by deflating the ideal. And we can all do this, whether you are a parent or you're in a role such as a teacher or a clinician. We can do this on many, many different levels. Uh, Reduce the pressure to be thin by, number one, counteracting the social forces. Um, And although I focus today on the media, very powerful social forces about body image come from parents and peers. Uh, We can cultivate protective skills, and we can try to shift our focus to health. So counteracting social forces. Um, This is something, I don't know if anyone has seen these um, ads. Um, Dove is another um, brand that has done more more kind of um, ads geared at women of all sizes. This is something that would be absolutely unheard of even 20 years ago on TV. So what can we do? We can take personal responsibility. And I just give you an example. As clinicians, for example, we have to very closely monitor our, our waiting room material. So we have a healthy eating clinic and an eating disorder clinic, and it never fails. I walk through there. We have People Magazine and Shape Magazine and Self Magazine in the, in, the, um, in the waiting room. And that's the last thing we want young people to be exposed to when they're coming to our health setting. Um, you can do that in your home, too. You can feel free to just toss out those magazines or stop ordering them, monitoring TV time and TV content. Um, the second thing we can do is teach and practice critical consumerism. I think as adults, we're much better at being critical consumers. Adolescents tend to be much more concrete. They don't stop to ask whether a picture has been airbrushed or whether that's real life. They're much more likely to take a picture at face value. And then finally, we can provide perspective. What kind of protective skills can we cultivate? Well, in addition to coping skills, problem-solving, decision-making, assertiveness, communication, stress management, mindfulness is one of the most important skills that we can work on. And there are many resources, actually, through the Osher Center um, work to work on mindfulness. Other resources that I'm really fond of are non-diet or anti-diet approaches. I just put a couple here. Um, The Solution is a program that was developed by Laurel Mellon. She actually started this work at UCSF, now has um, developed a nonprofit organization. Um, Intuitive Eating is another fantastic book. This is really uh, now is an old book, but they have updated it. Um, But it's also a non-diet approach to to health and and good nutrition. And then for young people, um, there are websites. My favorite organization is The Body Positive. This is an organization in in Oakland um, that works with young people, but also young women doing uh, peer education and other types of programs. They even make movies um, to promote positive body image. So the final piece um, on how to uh, combat these forces is shifting our focus to health. So the first point to remember is that self-care 
including everything from nutrition to family planning, all of these good, healthy behaviors that we're supposed to be doing and we want young people to be doing, it's all predicated on good self-image. If you don't love yourself, why would you feed yourself well? Why would you exercise yourself? Why would you, for young people, why would they take steps not to get pregnant? You have to have a dream that you're working toward and a reason to want to take care of yourself. So that's the place to start. In terms of concrete nutrition and activity advice, I often advise the young people that I work with to set nutrition and activity goals, not weight goals. I think that we've all probably been guilty of that from one time or another. Like, I weighed this much in high school. I should probably be this much. I need to get down to this much. We talk about that with our friends. I need to lose 5 pounds. I need to lose 10 pounds. Changing the conversation to, I need to start walking three times a week. I need to start bringing a water bottle to work because I find myself drinking coffee in the afternoon when I'm really thirsty. I need to start eating more vegetables because I'm doing this. So really bringing the conversation around to nutrition and to health and to activity. And by doing that, we're focusing not only our, our, our own goals, but the conversation on achievable goals. Because weight is not a goal. It's just a number. And there's nothing in the end that we can actually do about the weight. What we can do is change the behaviors, um, and, and that's what impacts our health. The second thing is to empower. Um, so I talked about doing away with images. If it makes you feel bad to read Self Magazine, I, I'm just that's an example that comes up because it's the one I saw in the waiting room. But those kind of images in studies have been shown to um, make women feel bad about themselves. Don't read it. Also monitoring self-talk. So if you find yourself saying, I can't button my gray pants for work. Oh, my goodness, I'm getting so... That's a moment to catch yourself and say that's not positive self-talk. And a better approach would be to say, I want to make sure to do my walking today so that I feel healthy. And then finally, promoting body esteem. Valuing what your body can do and not how it looks. Um, And this is a more natural outlook when you are involved in activity and you have a goal that you're going to. If you're doing a a walk with your friends to say, I'm going six miles, I'm going seven miles. So focusing not always on how we look, but what we are achieving. The most powerful thing that women can do, women who are parents, is to model healthy body esteem to to the young people that are around them. If it's your own children or if it's nieces and nephews, if it's students in your classroom, um, that has been shown in study after study after study that young women pick up on those messages, girls and children pick up on the every little I can't button my gray pants before work to mom's gaining a little bit, I'm going to eat a smaller dinner. So the most powerful thing you can do is, even if you don't believe it initially, is model healthy body esteem. So I'll stop there. Um, I just put another resource here. This is a great website called Adios Barbie. They have a lot of interesting um, articles, and they even have their own section called Body Image. And, um, but I'm glad to take questions. Thank you very much. Okay, so the question is, why, although we intend to and we know we should be having healthier choices and eat a salad and eat broccoli, what is it that draws us back to the snacks and the chocolate and the pretzels? That's a question. Um, I would say, and I, I truly believe, in fact, I wrote an article recently on food addiction. I very much believe in that, even though it's a very controversial topic. But the answer in a nutshell is that the chocolate is much more rewarding 
It just is. Um, you get a burst of dopamine, a burst of opiates. It makes you feel really good to eat a piece of chocolate. The problem is that that stress relief and that happiness that you get from the piece of chocolate is very short-lived. And many, many pieces of chocolate later, if it starts to impact your health, then there are negative, negative consequences to that. So, um, so it's the reward. It's the inherent reward. Um, now, for, for everyone, I'm sure you have at some point gone for a walk or gone for a jog or some kind of a class you know, that you in Zumba or whatever and have that rewarding feel after. But it took, you know, 30 minutes, 60 minutes of exercising and getting dressed and getting there. So the reward associated with those health behaviors is longer term. It may be 60 minutes or it may take months before you really start to feel great about what you're doing. So it's the short-term versus the long-term reward. You know... um, I have a three-year-old at home, and I absolutely see it starting um, with children's toys, for example. Um, Barbie, she just got a Barbie for her birthday. Um, and you know, and I had a moment where I thought, am I going to be the mom now who rips the Barbie out of her hands at the birthday party? And I decided not to. Um, but it's, it's really difficult. It starts very, very early, and it starts earlier than we think. Um, and again, it's so tied in with marketing and promotions. I read an interesting article about children's toys classic children's toys, probably one we all had. Remember the one we had when we were little, that little lawnmower pop-up thing? You would um, run it along the floor, and those little popcorns would go pop, 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 pop. A whole new market has evolved just making that toy in pink and marketing toward girls. So this differentiation between what's a girl's toy and what's a boy's toy, that already ties into, and then it's a Barbie, of course, the body image. Um, I think it starts very, very young, and it's difficult for parents, even well-meaning, to uh, counteract that. Um, If you look at Halloween costumes, highly sexualized Halloween costumes, I don't know if anyone has noticed that over the years. If you look at the costumes off the rack, you know, the witch costume that used to be the scary one with the big nose and the green hair and the warts is now the short little skirt with the teeny little this and that, and that's sold to very young children. Okay, so um, the question was, in people who have compulsive eating or disordered eating, might it be a problem with the ventral tegmental area, which is an area of the brain that's associated with reward? There is some very interesting work being done by Eric Stice's group and others where they're doing functional imaging, so functional MRI. And they're looking at brain changes in people who are um, who are overweight, people who are obese, and people who are so-called or rate themselves as food addicts. For many, or not many years, because the field is new, but for several years, people were able to show that in that area of the brain, things looked different when be- when people um, became obese. And now they have longitudinal data to suggest there's two things going on. There may be some pre-existing differences and long-term exposure to the foods that we talked about today, like fast food, high sugar, highly palatable foods, actually may cause changes in the brain. So the most studied one, for example, is downregulation of the D2, one of those dopamine receptors. So yes, I believe there are differences, and the question is now chicken or egg. Do people who are at risk for weight gain, do they have a different looking brain that requires more food for reward? Or do those changes happen over time? The way that alcoholics build up tolerance to alcohol, do you need more food to feel that reward as you have had more exposure? How do you spell the last name? S-T-I-C-E. Oh, sorry, S-T-I-C-E. Yeah. 
so um, your question is, um, first, to start at the end, why are we still using BMI as an indicator of health when the data just doesn't support that? And then the other piece was, um, in terms of public policy, with this intense focus on childhood obesity, what's being done to really in, incorporate or, or shift the focus toward health behaviors instead of obesity? So um, first of all, about BMI, BMI is such a tricky one because, you know, I admit as a clinician, I use it every day. It's something we use in the clinic because it's so easy to calculate and those measurements are right there at our fingertips. If you really want to get at some of these better measures, you have to have fancier equipment. For body composition, you have to have DEXA, which is, you know, an extremely expensive piece of x-ray equipment. Um, in the old days when I was in graduate school, school, we did hydrostatic weighing where you take a person and like, dunk them in a water tank. Um, you know, there are simpler measures like bioelectrical impedance. And there are some scales and other little ways to do that. Uh, some people are using CAT scan, for example, to look at visceral fat and compare how much. So there are more sophisticated ways to do it. But the easiest way to do it is BMI because all you need is a height and a weight. So it's one of those really, really flawed measures that we can't quite get away from because we don't have anything better. The one thing that I will um, say on a clinical level is that BMI is useful if you track it over time. And when I'm working with, you know, teaching medical students and residents and fellows, I always emphasize the importance of continuity of care and that it's change over time so that you can track someone's health status. Because BMI really is, uh, you know, it's terrible on an individual level and it's not that great on a population level either, as I showed you. So um, the second thing about, the, about public health, I think that, um, you know, Michelle Obama has actually done a fantastic job in drawing attention and creating excitement around health and around fitness and let's move. Um, but what is staggering, perhaps not surprising, is how locked in she has been by the food industry. And so the discussions that you hear coming out of let's move and coming out of these um, you know, these real efforts to address nutrition and physical activity are things like, you know, low sodium Cheetos or, you know, mini packs of Oreos, right? Because, uh, you know, it's very, very difficult. The food industry in the United States is very powerful. And Anytime they jump on board and say, oh, we're going to get, you know, this low sodium thing, for example, we're really going to get behind that. What that means is we're going to make new products that people will buy because we, in, in public health, have just told people lower your sodium levels or eat fewer calories. So this is a real problem, and it just has been discouraging to see how that has just been locked in. Um, I hope... Um, but I fear, and I think you're getting at that too, that this intense focus on childhood obesity is not doing more um, damage than, um, than good. There is a really fantastic study by my colleague Chris Madsen. She's at Berkeley now. She was here until recently. She did a study among 8 million school children in California, and what she showed is that um, obesity levels do appear to be leveling off uh, in California, and um, she believes, and other experts really believe, that that might be a sign that some of these public health efforts are working, like getting sodas out of school and some of the other legislation. Um, on the other hand, kids who are already severely obese are becoming more so. 
And that, to me, as a clinician, really says that we don't have good ways of treating kids who are already, um, you know, suffering those consequences. So it's a tricky, tricky area. So that's a very interesting question, and that is, how are we measuring stress and trauma? Are we addressing it clinically? Because, as as you said, the effects are so deleterious over time that um, they can be just crippling um, midlife, but they start so early. So to be honest, I'll tell you, the measures are poor, and I feel like until very recently, it's been a don't ask, don't tell system. Um, because we work in a medical center where people are trained in disciplines, you know, nutrition, medicine, nursing, and so on. Um, and for a long time, there was not in good, good inclusion of psychological care, of psychiatric care, not good inclusion of social work, and so on. And so these were questions that clinicians are afraid to ask because they don't know what to do with the answers. Um, in our clinics, um, in I'm proud to say that in our eating disorder clinic, less so in our weight management clinic, but we try, we um, have taken much more of an interdisciplinary and much more integrated approach recently where we are paired up to address um, kind of the mind-body connection. We have mental health and we have physical health there. Um, we're making many, many more referrals now um, for, um, for therapy, in, certainly in our eating disorder program where it's really a requirement um, of the program, but in the obesity clinic too. The trouble is in our, and again, election night, I said I was going to incorporate a few um, you know, political tidbits, but it is very difficult. The insurance coverage for mental health is very poor, um, especially for Medi-Cal patients. And, and we all know that um, as in California, as it is in the rest of the nation, people who are lower income are disproportionately affected they ha by obesity and all of these other things that we talked about. And then we're trying to refer them. Some of these kids really need mental health care, and there's no coverage for them. So it's, um, I think it's a good question and it's an area that really needs to be addressed and, and we're, we're working on it. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad to answer that actually. Um, my answer, or my vote on that was yes, absolutely yes, because I believe that it is a right to know issue. Um, I don't think there's enough data yet to really say um, what are the health outcomes that are related to specifically, but I think there are health outcomes, and I think that that is our choice to make as consumers when we're buying something. I was very concerned by the kind of the scare tactics that were used to shoot down that um, that legislation. I, I don't feel hopeful that it'll pass. Um, in talking to other colleagues, people were really fearful, of, oh, it's going to affect our food prices and so on. It's the same thing they said about menu labeling in restaurants. Um, now, the argument can be made that there are no data to say that if people know, they'll make a better choice, and that's true. But what the data from, you know, when I talk about menu labeling, I mean, like, if you go to McDonald's, now you look up and you see, like, the Big Mac value meal. It's $3.99, and it's 585 calories. So... Um, Similarly, people said, well, there's no good data that that changes individual behavior. And although that is true, what now seems to be emerging is that it changes industry behavior, right? They want to have good-looking menu labels, and so they're changing their offerings. And I believe the same could be true for labeling of GMO foods. I think that manufacturers will change their behavior because they want to sell their product. And that ultimately is where our power lies as consumers. So, yes, on 37, I... I I hope. Thank you very much. What a great group. Yes. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.